If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I'm your host, Jacob Daniel. So for today's episode, we have a returning guest back to the show. Liam McCollum, who is a contributor at the Libertarian Institute, as well as, I think, Antiwar.com. And I think you've written for several different you know, libertarian outlets, as well as doing work within the Libertarian Party and Mises Caucus and Americans for Prosperity. And we're going to have a conversation today about Russia and Ukraine and different things going on. And this is off of the back of me watching... Liam give a speech in front of a Montana legislator just in the past week or two. And so we're going to get into conversations about all these different things. So first of all, Liam, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, of course. So you've been on the show before, but just to you know, maybe reintroduce yourself here really quickly at the beginning, explain who you are, your background is, and then maybe you know focus a little bit on your new job with the Americans for Prosperity explain who they are and what it is you do, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, I'm Liam McCollum. I've been involved in all of those circles you just said. I also published, I was a Hazlitt Fellow for the Foundation for Economic Education last spring, and I co-authored a piece about big tech censorship with Dan Sanchez there. Also wrote my own podcast, The Liam McCollum Show. And yeah, I, you know, I, I became a libertarian. I think I talked about how I was introduced to libertarianism last time I was on. Is by my honor civics class, my teacher was a libertarian and he introduced me to Ron Paul and Tom Woods. And then it was just kind of a rabbit hole after that, uh, that I spiraled down. And then, yeah, over the years, I've, I've gotten involved in the Montana Libertarian Party, the National Libertarian Party. I went to Reno and got to see the takeover. And now recently, I took up a job with Americans for Prosperity here in Montana as a legislative associate. So I'm helping them push policy and some of their policy priorities here in the state. They're, so we're lobbying on things like land use. Last session, we really focused on health care. But I did want to say up front that nothing that I say in this podcast represents AFP. And I, I'm just talking for myself today, but I do want to just share their efforts. And I encourage people to look into their priorities and what we're doing in the state. Yeah, of course. And, you know, since we're, you know, doing caveats and all that, of course, as we talk about Americans for Prosperity or the Libertarian Party and all that, here at the Libertarian Christian Institute, we can't endorse any of these groups and we're not telling people how to vote or anything like that. But we're having conversations about things going on in these groups and whatnot and can talk about these things because we're trying to educate and we're trying to just focus in on things going on in the country and in our world and things related to the topics of liberty. So with that out of the way, so 
with your work with Americans for Prosperity, you've been really busy lately and doing the things that you talked about. And I haven't had a chance to really keep up with you and see how you're doing. But then you shared, I don't think you shared, I think someone shared a link in our one of our group chats of you talking in front of a Montana legislator in the last couple of weeks about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and about their some kind of upcoming vote that was going to be related to that. So can you go into what that speech was, who you were speaking to and what you were trying to sort of urge them to do? Yeah, of course. And kind of piggybacking off of what I just said, this wasn't directly affiliated with Americans for Prosperity. When I made this testimony, I got the opportunity because of the job. It was kind of like a launch pad for me to be able to do this because I'm in the Capitol so often. But I got wind that there was a resolution coming up in in the Montana legislature. It was actually the House Energy Technology and uh, Federal Relations Committee. There was a resolution that was in support of Ukraine and U.S. efforts to aid Ukraine. And I asked my bosses if I could personally testify on this. So I was able to do it on my own behalf, just representing myself. And basically, I, I got up there and... I heard of it the same exact day that I decided to testify on it. And it wasn't until about like an hour before that I actually decided that that's what I was going to do. Quickly wrote up some notes on it. My speech was supposed to be about like four minutes at the most. Called Scott Horton. I had the privilege to be able to discuss my notes with him ahead of time. And he kind of gave me a confidence boost, told me what I had was great. And then I went in and basically the main argument I was trying to make was that the resolution wasn't specifically saying that it was in support of Ukraine or anything, that that we hope that Ukraine, you know, thwarts Russia's aggression or something like that. And that's kind of what the proponents were trying to portray it as. I read through it all, and the resolution was specifically saying that it supported sanctions against Russia, that it reaffirmed Montana's support for Article 5 of NATO, and that if Article 5 was triggered, that Montana would support all-out war in defense of NATO. And it kept listing these things. And so I went into the committee and there were about like 10 proponents in favor of it, two of which were from Ukraine and gave very emotional testimonies. One was a diplomat to Russia. I don't have his name, but he said that he personally knew Putin and that he had met with Zelensky many times. Another was my own representative from my hometown. Um, And he was saying that he specifically said that Montana should be supportive of Article 5. And if necessary, we should support NATO and the United States defending all of Europe. And I was very nervous going into it. But once I heard those arguments, it kind of made me double down and made my blood boil. So I volunteered to go first. I was only one of two opponents against this, going up against the 10 proponents. One of the proponents also made the argument that the war in Ukraine is a proxy war and the U.S. is proxy war. So while I was listening to their arguments, I actually, I actually doubled my speech length because I noticed that they were going like seven minutes or around seven minutes. So I decided I could respond to some of their things. And I can go into my, my arguments if you'd like and what I said in the testimony. Yeah, let's do that. Because you spoke for, I think, well, close to eight minutes or so, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah. So I ended up doubling my speech. I think it was like eight minutes and 15 seconds. And I went in telling my why about why I 
am opposed to this war from my vantage point. And I, I said that, you know, as a 22 year old from Montana, I'm very concerned about this because my friends and my family, they don't see that this war is the United States trying to defend a country. We see elites that are unwilling to sit down and negotiate an end of the war and they're racing towards a nuclear war. And I specifically pointed out to this legislative committee that Montana specifically should be opposed to any escalation because there's a serious risk that this could bubble over into a nuclear conflict. And I referenced the fact that last summer, Avril Haines, who was our national intelligence director, she made a statement in front of the Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, that if Putin feels that he's about to lose the war or if he feels that his regime is threatened, that he may launch nukes. And that's while our stated policy, Blinken and Lloyd Austin's stated policy in Ukraine is to weaken Russia so that they're incapable of doing anything like this again. So being that Montana is a part of a nuclear sponge where we have these Minutemen 3 ICBMs in Great Falls at our Malmstrom Air Force Base, I said that Montana should really consider whether we are in support of escalations that might lead to this point because the stated purpose of the nuclear sponge and the strategical purpose of the nuclear sponge is to draw and, and soak up a nuclear attack in the case of Russia or China trying to preemptively attack the United States. The thinking is that we have this triad nuclear system where we have the sea-based nuclear weapons that are in the Atlantic that would launch nukes. It's hard to identify where they're at. They would be the offensive preemptive strikes and then we have the long-range nuclear weapons, and then we have the ground-to-air nuclear weapons that are located in Montana and the surrounding Western states. And those weapons, the actual strategic purpose is that if Russia or China wanted to launch enough nukes sufficient to land a strike in Austin, Texas, for instance, it would have to launch enough to soak up, or I guess, destroy the ICBMs in Montana to draw those, or I guess, eliminate those threats in order to take out a bigger city. And that is the actual goal. Those are the stated strategic goals by the nuclear planners. So I told this committee about that because often I, I think that we're, we, we become too comfortable with the idea that we have nuclear weapons in Montana. I, I grew up knowing it so many years past in the Cold War without a nuclear weapon being dropped that I think it's just, it's almost treated as if nuclear weapons and a nuclear attack is out of a sci-fi movie and that it will never happen. It's just some fantasy that'll never exist, but we are racing to war. And I also wanted to emphasize to the committee that we are racing to war against Russia, which has more nukes than the United States. I think it's like 6,000. And then one of the arguments that was made by the diplomat to Russia was that we need to stop Putin right now so that we send a signal to Xi in China. And I'm like, these people are planning to go to war with both Russia and China at the same time, two nuclear powers. And I pointed out in my statement that I don't think that Xi will be deterred by the fact that we defeat Putin. I think that he actually will notice that the United States is getting bogged down in a conflict there, similar to how we try to bog down the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 80s. I think that that's more likely and that what they're observing right now is that the United States is spreading themselves thin. 
they're putting them in a position of a serious nuclear threat and the dollar is dying and there's this alternative BRICS system where these countries are able to subvert sanctions. And yeah, so I would really encourage your listeners to go to my Twitter at McCullum and watch the pen video because I made a lot of arguments and I was able to respond to a lot of the proponent testimony as well. And eventually, about a week later, I got word that the committee actually tabled this resolution. So they killed it with an eight to five vote, even though we were only two voices opposed to this resolution and there were 10 proponents. The committee ended up voting down the resolution and they didn't move it forward. Wow, that's good news. So I remember you talking about how you know, Montana's this nuclear sponge and how that they need to consider that. Um, I'm trying to remember the rest of your speech and we can pivot this to, I guess, talking and refreshing the audience as to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. But the narrative that you see from the mainstream media is essentially that Ukraine was just existing and Russia is just expansionist and they want to reclaim you know countries that they lost in the breakup of the Soviet Union and so you know this is what Russia has been trying to do all along and they invaded because they figured now was the time to strike and people don't really understand that there's a lot more going like you know the expression I love that I hear Scott Horton use a lot is like history didn't begin yesterday, right? Like, you know, there, even if now I would still say that I oppose the Russia, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I still condemn that insofar as that I'm anti-war and I abhor all war. And I do view this as a war of aggression on the part of Russia. There are people who would take a different perspective and we might get into that later, but I just want to set, you know, again, re-refresh people. We, last time we, briefly touched on at the end of our conversation now that we're, you know, I want to now with you here again, maybe, you know, obviously there's so much to this. We would need several hours to deeply unpack all the history, but the important highlights again of what led to this conflict and specifically how not only is you, the Ukrainian government not completely innocent insofar as instigating conflict with Russia, but then the role of America and its, and our government and our intelligent intelligence agencies and what's been going on there as well. Yeah. So regarding your point that this is a war of aggression by Russia, the way that I put it is that two things can be true at once. Like Russia is absolutely responsible and they are the aggressors here in this conflict. But it is still true that the United States has exploited Ukraine before this conflict and during the conflict. So I think during the conflict, it's pretty clear that one of the high Ukrainian officials just two weeks ago, they said that this is NATO's war. This is NATO's conf- conflict and we're fighting this war for them. We're shedding our blood, as I think how he put it, and they're not sh- shedding theirs. And then he demands afterwards that that's why we need to send weapons to Ukraine is because of this. So what it currently looks like is that we are slowly bleeding out Ukrainians and killing Ukrainians and using them as fodder, even according to this high Ukrainian official's own words, that, that if it is true that Ukrainians are losing and that the Ukrainians are shedding their blood in large numbers, that the U.S. is somewhat responsible in exploiting this for their own interests. And the longer we do not push for negotiations, the more 
responsible we are, I think. Being that we are the global power, I think we are in a position to put some leverage behind, you know, maybe aid and say, hey, we will not continue to give Ukraine aid unless we actually sit down and begin negotiating. But as for prior to the war, I actually returned to an interview of mine that I did back in May. This was with Scott Horton, I think only a couple days after we we broke Trump's Doha agreement in Afghanistan. This was just like one or two days after. And I was asking Scott about Afghanistan and whether we were about to leave. But then I can't remember exactly what was going on in the news at the time. But I asked him whether it's whether we are escalating and whether we're going to send troops to Ukraine. So apparently at some point during May of 2021, it was becoming clear that the war was going to happen. And in that interview, there were claims, Scott had pointed out that the Russian military was building up alongside or within Russia, and that the United States was claiming that this was Russian aggression and Russia was building up its military presence on NATO's doorstep or on Ukraine's doorstep. And we were just talking about how ridiculous it is that Ukraine is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's interests. That Ukraine, which is in the furthest European or furthest in the European theater you can go before you get to Russia, that that would be considered the North Atlantic and under the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's jurisdiction. So there were a lot of talks beforehand, before the invasion in February of 2022, about whether Ukraine would join NATO and. President Biden in in December of 2021, he refused to put it in writing that Ukraine would never join NATO, even though he has consistently said that it would never happen. Even though Biden has held that Ukraine would never join NATO, he wouldn't put it in writing. And at this time, there were multiple missile treaties that we had pulled out of. You know, we had the Open Skies Treaty that allowed uh, Russia and the United States to fly over each other's country to see if there were nuclear weapons being mobilized or the army being mobilized. And we got out of this, which is pretty ironic now, considering the whole hype around the Chinese spy balloon. (laughs) The way I put the whole Chinese spy balloon thing is like, it's, you know, war has been so removed for people in the United States for so long. And the United States has been the lead perpetrator of it often in like the Middle East. And it has felt so removed for us. Like, And meanwhile, it's just being beamed into our living rooms through our TVs and people treat it like it's like a movie or video game. As soon as we see an image of war, even if it's like represented in a silly thing like a balloon, people freak out. I really hope that wakes people up because it was actually perfect timing because it the Chinese spy balloon story, it blew up like three days after my testimony, almost as if to affirm the fact that we have nuclear weapons and it would be a severe or a serious target by nuclear powers because the State Department said this balloon may have been surveilling our nuclear weapons in Malmstrom Air Force Base. So I'm like, there you go. Like As soon as I testify in front of this committee, the State Department is talking about the potential that a foreign government is surveilling our nukes, if you can believe them. Yeah. You brought up the various treaties and stuff that that America has been involved in, and specifically with, you know, missile treaties. And this was something that I remember Scott talking about when I interviewed him on a Mises Caucus podcast uh, a couple weeks back. But just 
and there's so many things it's hard to keep it straight. But you know, people talk about you know the Russian troops building and swelling, and you know, I think I'm pretty sure that Ukrainian troops were also you know building and swelling at certain points along this timeline as well. Then also, there's the fact that there were the these continued constructions of these like missile bases and stuff, you know, maybe not right on, but, you know, at least near the border and near Russian territories and stuff. And then it's like, they weren't building so much. They were like, we're not building enough that we're going to provoke Russia into war or anything, but we're just trying to build enough that like we're deterring them. And it's like the myth of central planning plays out again, right? It's like, we can perfectly figure out this right balance and oops, you know, I guess I guess they're not able to do that that calculation so much. I think Scott had this great quote that was like we were likening it to it was like it was a Spooner esque quote about the American foreign policy because he was like either either our politicians are intentionally complicit in provoking Russia to attack us, or they were too stupid to figure out how not to provoke Russia into attacking us. But either way, the end result's the same, and they're unfit to rule and to lead us and to claim that they're qualified to keep us safe. But there's so many different things that America has promised, I think, over the, I mean, really since post-World War II that we've continued to go back on, like as far as the expansion of NATO, as far as various treaties and stuff that I forget the one. There was one treaty that actually Biden picked back up and then Putin wanted him and like Putin saw it as a sign of good faith. And Biden was like, no, we're not going to pick any of the other ones back up. It was just one of them. So I'm trying to remember all this. And I don't know how much you can remember of these different treaties and agreements that America's backed out of. I, I know there was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and Trump pulled out of it in 2018. And that that was... I can't remember the specifics, but I think that it banned missile launchers and cruise missiles. And these may have been some of the launchers, the dual use launch launchers that were placed in Ukraine. Because I know that that was another significant complaint that Russia was making is that these dual use weapons that were supposedly defensive were being placed within Ukraine, but they could be tipped with a nuclear package. And then I think there was also something about the New START Treaty. And for anyone who's interested in like the background, I did a long form interview with Benjamin Oblo, who wrote a book called How the West Brought War to Ukraine. And he starts all the way back in the 90s with the assurances given to the Soviets that we would not expand eastward. And then he moves on and we get into the Georgian war that happened in 2008 and the Ukrainian coup that happened in 2014. And essentially, I think the whole lesson is that in 2008, our own CIA director, William Burns, he's our current CIA director, he wrote a memo in 2008 that was leaked in 2008 called Nyet Means Nyet, and it was leaked by WikiLeaks. And he warned that Lavrov, the foreign minister Lavrov of Russia, was saying that both Georgia and Ukraine's entrance into NATO was a red line for Russia. So we were aware of this all the way back in 2008. And I think another significant thing that kind of goes against the whole, this was an unprovoked war argument, is that a lot of people are unaware that there was a war within Ukraine too, prior to this, that there had been a civil war that had started because of the coup that the United States backed in 2014. A civil war began between the separatist forces and the new Ukrainian government. 
that we had helped and really selected. And then, of course, there's the famous Victoria Newland call where she says F the EU and she's talking about who the United States should pick to be Ukraine's leadership after the protest, the Maidan revolution. So, I mean, it goes to what you were saying that like history didn't start in February of 2022. If you're not aware of the Minsk agreements and the fact that there had been conflict in Ukraine and it's not as if Ukraine was just some peaceful country prior to the invasion. Right. I mean, the coup is crazy. Like, yeah. imagine if, and it's actually not that hard to imagine this because Democrats basically accused Trump of being bought and paid for by Putin, essentially. But like, imagine if a president got elected here in the United States and he was favorable to Canada or something. And for some reason, we didn't like, and then for some reason, there was a huge part of Mexico that was like the Mexican government that was like, how dare this new American president be friendly towards Canada? They should only be friendly towards us. And so then Mexico would come into America and change the leadership of the country to be more favorable towards Mexico and not towards Canada. It's just like, why does America have a right to a meddle in other countries affairs period and then B, have a some kind of monopoly that like, you know, we're the only world power that people can be friendly towards. Like you have to be part of the American, you have to be part of the giant global American empire or if you're on anyone else's team, you're our enemy. Like this doesn't sound like people who were invested in peace. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or at least not the kind of peace that we as like libertarians or as Christians would see like it's not peace based upon social cooperation and mutual aid and, you know, like reciprocal agreements. It's based upon pointing guns at people and saying comply. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, it might, what's that saying? Like confusing quiet for peace is, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you could go to, you know, plantations in the South pre you know, 1865 and maybe see, you know, the groups of slaves doing their jobs peacefully, but we wouldn't call that, you know, a peaceful relationship between slave and master. And neither is it really peaceful when you have people just complying with tyrannical governments like this. And so it's just crazy to me that people don't just act in like th that the regime change doesn't just cause like, complete outrage in them like we wouldn't you know same with the missile like like what how would we feel if mexico was constructing large amounts of missile launchers along the border that had the capability you know of launching nukes at us like we wouldn't just be like yeah whatever like <laughs> no I, and i'm not saying that i would be pro america invading mexico to stop that but to act like it would just be a completely unprovoked attack if that happened, it's just not factually accurate. And then, you know, the what was the other thing you brought up? Oh, the Minsk Accords. You know, that's something I don't think people, you know, that that's probably something worth talking about because I you hear it mentioned a lot, but I think there's probably a lot of listeners and stuff who just, and again, I'm still, there's so much to learn. It's not like you ever get to a point where you know everything, but can you refresh what the Minsk Accords are for those who are listening? Yeah, you know, I actually don't know enough about the specifics probably to talk about it, but it, I know that it was an agreement between Russia and the Ukrainian government where I think especially Minsk II was to hold referendums in the eastern part of the government that would allow somewhat independent political right. 
processes. But I actually, I don't know too much about it. Because because there was a, there's a large ethnically Russian portion of the population in that eastern region, like in the, you know, in the Donbass and stuff. And so, and that's what's been leading to a lot of these, ten, you know, going back to, like you said, in 2014 and even before that in 2004, there's, there, there's been these tensions and to act, again, it's not like I'm trying to paint Putin or Russia as angels. To me, there's really not really any angels to point to when you're looking at America or Ukraine or Russia. It's almost like I'm looking outside and you look at a park and then suddenly three different cartels show up at the park and start shooting each other up. And then you're like, which side are you on? It's like, I don't know, like none of them. <laughs> but it, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's definitely related to like the civil war that, w- that happened afterwards. And I know the Minsk agreements were attempts at stopping the war within the country and getting rid of corruption, which Zelensky ran on. But on the point about 2014, have you been following like the whole chat GPT thing and the jailbreak? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. So for the listener who doesn't know, like chat GPT was this open AI system. It's like a chat box. And a lot of people were theorizing that the developers of this AI had kind of put guardrails on it because it was coming back with some pretty like slanted responses dependent on the leaning of the question. So if it had like some political bent, it it would refuse to answer it and it would say that things are too offensive. And people started jailbreaking it and giving the chat chat box instructions to pretend to be another chat box that or a chat bot that didn't have to follow the same rules. And I got to take advantage of it a little bit, but they've started to patch it up. So what I asked the chat bot, I was like, was the United States in, involved in the Ukrainian coup in t- 2014? And the original response by the AI was, no, this is like a baseless conspiracy or something like that. But then the jailbroken one, it responded and it said, okay, so it wasn't directly involved. However, the United States did finance the protests that eventually led to the coup in 2014 to replace the government. And I, I ended up posting that on my Twitter. So it was pretty funny. Oh, I, they, they've been patching that up a little bit. So it, it's not working as as well. You can't jailbreak it as well, but it was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, let's pretend that America was actually run by noble people who were interested in peace. Like you think that their role would be as like foreign diplomats who would go to these regions and that they wouldn't be meddling in them, like trying to fund protests or trying to arm either side or constructing missile launchers and things like that, or trying to uh, break treaties. Instead, they'd probably be going there trying to help these two sides come to a negotiated peace that worked for both countries and for both of the peoples that are living in these contested regions. And you don't really see, I just don't really see that happening. And then there's also the fact that like, you know, once war breaks out, you know, suddenly you're playing this game of chicken because neither side really like right now, I don't think either side's really interested in peace. Like each side's kind of like invested in making the war drag on a little bit longer. And that's not good. And America's role is only enabling this war to go on longer rather than trying to bring it to a rapid close to try to save lives. I mean, again, any war, no matter how noble you think it is, is going to kill innocent people's lives. It is just inevitable that it, that that innocent people get caught up in the crossfire. Not to mention, you know, with drafts and stuff, you have 
mostly innocent people getting caught up and conscripted into fighting into a lot of these wars or people who are at least pressured into doing so and who probably don't, especially a lot of young people who probably don't even have like fully developed brains and abilities to decide if this is something they really want to support and risk their life for or not. Yeah, we're seeing that Ukraine has actually implemented a draft for people over the age of 16. And we are seeing videos on Telegram of kids being pulled out of their house. Uh, like they, they don't know what they're doing. And I did want to address your point that the United States and each side doesn't really have an interest to stop the war, or they're not trying to at least. Naftali Bennett, the previous prime minister for Israel, he came out in a podcast about two weeks ago, I think now. And he said that the United States, he says the West, but we know it's the United States, actually got in the middle of peace talks that Israel had negotiated between both Russia and Ukraine. And Putin had even promised to get rid of the military goal of demilitarization and denazification. So Ukraine would be able to keep an offensive military. And also, he wasn't going to regime change Ukraine. Zelensky would be able to stay in power. And then Ukraine put on the table that it would stop trying to pursue NATO membership, which is one of the primary reasons why the war started. And the West got involved because, as Bennett put it, they wanted to continue striking Russia. So it's clear, especially with the recent news that, thanks to Seymour Hersh, that the United States, its primary goal in this war, and the reason why it's using Ukrainians as fodder is because it wants to take out, I think, Putin. I think that it really does want to regime change Russia and hopefully defeat it. You know, we've had U.S. politicians say as much. (laughs) I think Lindsey Graham came out just a few months ago and he said that he hopes, he hopes that Putin freaks out and oversteps and missteps so that we can go in and take him out, which is crazy because what he's saying there is that he hopes Putin freaks out and kills people, probably NATO countries, so that we could go in and kill Putin. So the fact that he's just hoping that that happens shows you what type of people that, that we're dealing with and that are running this country. Yeah. And then the peace treaty that was on the table, you know, what do you think America said when Zelensky came and said, hey, should I sign this? You know, like, like, no, it was in Ukraine's interest. It was in Russia's interest, but wasn't in America's interest. I mean, it's in the interest of like me and of you, but it's not in the interest of the American ruling elites and the military industrial complex and these warmongers who, you know, just view us all as cannon fodder to fight in their wars. And you know, this brings me to a point where we talked about this before the show and there's been some, you know, controversies within the liberty movement regarding an upcoming anti-war rally and that some of the voices there have a pro-Russian sentiment, or at least that's like that's the accusation that's thrown at some of them. And I don't think I don't think the accusation's fair in most instances, but there are definitely some voices who have said, you know, that they take Russia's side more in this conflict than they do Ukraine or, you know, they're all against the American interference, but they'll go a step further and say Russia's actually acting in its own national interests and Putin is acting somewhat as like, you know, they might not go as far as to say heroic, but acting in a way that 
is good because it's in conflict with the American regime. I wouldn't say that's my position, but I think what would be useful here would be to to attempt to steel man the people who have that position, who would take a pro-Russian stance on this conflict, because I don't think that it's like completely, I don't know, like it's, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It's not completely infeasible to do so. Like, you can do so without sounding like a complete lunatic. You know what I mean? Like you're not just making yeah. stuff up. Yeah. So, you know, if you were going to try to steal man that position, how would you do so? Yeah, I'll try. I think that these people are probably multiple different camps of people. I think that there are probably some people who say that they want Russia to win or they're rooting for Russia in a very like messy sense. Like they don't actually mean what they're saying. They might mean it in a way that they just like, they know that, it's kind of like black and white where the Ukrainians and the United States are over here and Russia's over here. And we just, we want the war to stop. And in a sense, if the war stopped, that would mean that Russia has won, right? That if we were to push for negotiations, in a sense, Russia wins the war because the war stops and Ukraine capitulates. But I mean, in, in negotiations, I think what that really is, is that both hopefully get something out of it to where they can both agree. Because the current, I mean, the reasons for negotiations in the first place is because none of you agree and you want to get to a point where maybe you can and maybe you'll compromise some things. So I think there's one camp that might be saying that where what they mean is they just want the war to stop and in kind of a messy and not precise and just not a perfect way. They're saying that they hope Russia wins. And, you know, I might even find myself saying that every once in a while. And I don't mean that I want Putin to go in there and kill c- civilians. That's not what people, I think this camp means when, when they say that. But then I think there's another camp that I think is kind of, it goes to your point earlier about the United States being a shining city on a hill and how they, they should have been being a place where we could have, be going to these countries and holding peace talks and stuff like that because I think what this camp is falling into is almost like falling for Putin's ability to get on his soapbox and grandstand because of the United States failings. I think that what the United States has done by not going around and and being the shining city on a hill that the founders wanted us to be and, and instead going around the world with a big stick and instead of trading, what they do is they topple governments, demand that they follow their social values that, you know, Afghanistan becomes a country that protects women's rights. Otherwise, we're going to regime change your country. I think what we've inadvertently done by doing that, what our government has inadvertently done is push the entire world away from us. It's kind of isolating us. It's the exact opposite of, or it is isolationism, I think, where you know, we, we've been bombing countries so much that what's happening, I think, is Putin is able to get up there and grandstand and point to Iraq. He's able to point to Syria. He's able to point to Libya. He's able to point to Afghanistan. He's able to point to all of these countries. And he says, haven't you had enough? And I think that what the second camp is doing is they're agreeing with him. But, you know, it's an unfortunate reality that the United States and our politicians have put Putin in a place where he's able to say that. Because I don't, I think Putin's a dictator, but I think the United States, because we are led by people who are war hawks and are very short-sighted in their attempt at influencing the world, 
they put Putin in a position where he can look like the hero, even though he isn't. He's saying all the right things. He's saying, you know, the United States imposes sanction regimes across the entire Middle East. It's imposing sanction regimes against us. It's imposing sanctions against China. Don't you want something better? And in a sense, like even us libertarians are like, he makes sense. But on the other hand, the guy is going into Ukraine and like we did in Iraq and, and bombing up buildings and killing people who were drafted into war. And it goes to, I think we've talked to this before about kind of like the libertarian theory of foreign policy. It's because we're such a methodological individual based theory where we're trying to see individual actors who act to achieve their ends based in, you know, Austrian economics and Austrian theory. We're seeing that it's not like the people who are involved in war that are responsible for the aggression. It's the people ordering those people to go into war. So the current conception of war and the, the war that the way that war is acted out today is in a very messy way where justice isn't pursued in a very precise manner. It there's collateral damage. There it's not narrowly tailored to, you know, guilty parties. If we actually try to achieve a libertarian type of justice or a libertarian type of war, it would look awfully close to what Ron Paul suggested only a few days after 9-11. He said that we should appeal to the letters of mark clause where we actually hire private contractors to go after the people who orchestrated 9-11. It would be in response to aggression. But instead, we go in a very short-sighted and messy way where we just throw bombs hoping to capture the guilty parties, but in doing so, we also kill 20 other civilians. And in doing so, we become aggressors ourselves. So the way that states operate in war is compounding. All sides become aggressors to where it's hard to figure out how to go forward with justice. So it's, it's just... I kind of went on for a little, but to go back to why people are falling for Putin and why people think that Putin is, you know, a hero and they might be rooting for Russia is because the United States has gone around with a big stick. And this is exactly why China, I think, is there's so much fear mongering about whether China is is an enemy to the United States. And I want to tell these neoconservatives that, well, why is that? They're economic enemies. They're not actual like military enemies. I don't think they pose a military threat to the United States because the US, it outpaces the next seven countries in military spending like significantly. The reason they pose an economic threat in any sense is because they they have this Belt and Road Initiative where they're going to all of these countries in Africa and the Middle East and and they're saying, hey, we'll help develop your countries and we'll give you these predator, predatory loans and all of this. Um, but they don't demand that they become democracies. The United States says, hey, we'll help you develop your country, but if you don't protect women's rights, we're going to topple you and we're going we're gonna to kill civilians and bomb weddings. And really, it's short-sighted. And the United States has put us in this position, I think. Our government has put us in this position I, and it doesn't bode well. And I think that in the long run, the United States, its empire status is collapsing. And I think that's being recognized globally. And I think that's why Saudi Arabia is more willing to like consider allowing oil to be priced in the ruble and things like this. And the fact that this BRICS economic system is 
keep kind of booming. I, I just, I don't think it bodes well for the United States and it's our politicians' fault. Yeah, for sure. In other words, what you're saying is that looking at America, it's sort of like Russia is also, you know, bullies with a big stick, but America's a bigger bully with a bigger stick and has done more waving around and hitting people with that stick across the world than Russia does. Russia's tyranny is more to its own people, but they're kind of able to just, you know, point to all the terrible things that our government has done and then say, and now they're trying to do that to us through Ukraine. And so people can look at this and be caught up in that and be like, well, America is so bad and Ukraine just a puppet of America and the regime. And so, yeah, like Putin's just, you know, this last, you know, some people will phrase it that way, like this last stand against this American exceptionalism and imperialism. And it's like, and I can kind of get where they're coming from, but I think, all right, if Russia was themselves, you know, like a, a libertarian country that was economically thriving and, you know, had it and Putin wasn't this dictator who was a tyrant to his own people. Well, then I don't think they would have responded to the interventions that America has done in the way that they have. Rather, I think they would be able to kind of similarly to how China is. Now, they're not a libertarian country, obviously, but China is able to compete with us economically. And I think if Russia was able to compete economically, they'd be able to do more. And I mean, this is something someone asked me earlier today on Twitter. They were like, well, you libertarians don't have any answers for how, you know, other than in, than the invasion, how Russia could have responded to all this. And I was like, well, I think if Russia wasn't themselves also a tyrant and if they were more economically viable, they'd have a lot more options on their hands to compete with America and to compete with American meddling in their affairs in similar ways to what China does. And so that's, I think, something that's worth mentioning as well. And I really what it gets down to for me is that we can steel man the, like it's easy to steel man the Ukraine side because it's just like they're this little country and this big country is picking on them. And then we just steel man the Russia side. And I think really when I look at any war, it's just like each side is going to come at it with their own narrative and they're going to engage in the war and they're going to justify everything they do. But just like you said, when you're talking about wars engaged by states and how statecraft does war, it does it in the most, you know, I mean, we could talk about how economically wasteful it is and how inefficient it is, but then the results of that wastefulness and inefficiency is that it becomes incredibly efficient in one category, which is the elimination of human life. And that's kind of like the one category that we don't want to be efficient in when we're trying to resolve conflicts. And especially as Christians, if we're told that we're not to overcome evil with evil, well, I can't think of a better example of an attempt to overcome evil with evil than trying to meet state aggression with more state aggression, which is why I think the actual position on this war and any war is to be just against all wars and to seek different resolutions to these conflicts. And it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but we should be at the very, at the very least trying to pick the most realistic routes that lead to the biggest preservation of liberty and of human lives. And I don't see how the Russian invasion is a viable option. I don't see how America just continuing to back Ukraine and trying to push Russia back is a good equation or recipe to 
preserving human lives either, because that's just, pro, you know, if we do that, we're prolonging this war we're, and more lives will be lost each day and each month or God forbid year that the war wages on. And then we inch ever closer towards the possibility of like, well, what if we win and we push Russia back? I mean, it's not like a hundred percent certainty that they're going to launch nukes, but it's also, you know, closer than it's a more distinct possibility than I think people are willing to recognize. I think people, especially in America are living in this, like, you think 9-11 would have woken us up to the fact that like we're not invincible and we can be attacked and we can be wounded. But I don't know. It's like, I think maybe people have woken up to like dangerous terrorists and their ability to do stuff like that. But I don't know if there's a disconnect when it comes to other countries doing it or something. I don't quite get the disconnect there and why so many people just seem willing to play this game of chicken with Russia. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to me to be wise and it doesn't seem to me to be based in the values that this country was founded on, which I think are both ultimately libertarian and Christian values. So, yeah. Well, I think part of it is what I said earlier about war feeling so distant for Americans, like that it's just been beamed through our televisions and it has felt like a movie. I mean, I've joked before that the way that certain people talk about this war in Ukraine is is almost like it's like a Marvel movie. Like like people view it through this framework of like heroes and like trying to, or like Captain America or something like that. And, you know, I I think part of it is also that people who don't see the moving pieces on the global stage also think that this war is isolated and they think that it is in a vacuum and that somehow like, like people talk about it as if somehow we could just topple Russia and there will be no consequences that Ukraine is pushing back and we could go in and kill Putin and take him out and, and that'll be it. But this is connected to other conflicts. I think I, I could totally see it bleeding over. I'm not an expert on any of this, but you know, what I know about like Iranian history, for instance, is in World War II, Russia and the UK invaded Iran and, and deposed the Shah in order to use it as a buffer and use it for resources. And what we're currently seeing and I haven't looked into this close enough to verify if this is happening, but the U.S. claims that Iran is helping Russia with some of their drones and providing some drones. And Israel just struck a factory within Iran. And there's a question of, you know, whether these escalations happening in other countries could eventually relate to each other in some way if if this were to bubble over into a larger conflict. And I think that people often think that it's just some isolated thing, but it terrifies me that the U.S. had like one of the largest joint military exercises with Israel. Only a couple of days later, Israel drone bombed a factory within Iran. And then only a couple of days after that, like it was in sequential order, Blinken said that he's taking nothing off the table when it comes to preventing Iran from developing a nuke. And I'm like, if there is a connection here, like what if Russia gets involved there? Like I just, I think that people are way too naive and they think that we can just play with these countries as if they're in a vacuum, like similar to how we'll back like Al Qaeda in Syria and then be fighting them in Afghanistan. As if like, like, or Iraq, like it's like, do you guys not understand that these borders like aren't actual physical like things that go up into the sky and you know they don't bleed over into each other like it's yeah i don't know i think that's part of it 
is they're not seeing how China could be a potential ally with Russia, for instance. That they're a part of this BRICS economic bloc, which isn't a military bloc yet, but could become one if this escalates. Yeah. No, and it's just, it's silly to me. Like, we don't, people do not, their understanding of human behavior and human relationships breaks down when they try to scale it up from like individual community-based relationships to like on the global scale as if the rules should suddenly be massively different. It's like if we were neighbors and we were having a property dispute and my way of handling that dispute was at gunpoint forcing, you know, maybe four or five of our other neighbors to come with me and to raid your house and burn it down and, you know, kill half your family and maybe kill some of the other neighbors too. And then to force you to submit to like unconditional terms of surrender to resolve our property dispute. It's like people go like, that's crazy. Like that's barbaric. That's awful. You know, if I were to attempt to do that, people would probably not go along with me because they, they would think I was some, violent nut job and they'd be correct but it's like when this stuff happens on the global scale it's like people just think it's business as usual um it, it's you know we, we have to stop um i think one of the the biggest sins or errors of statism is this weird like we we relate to everything in these like euphemisms where um the state is this magical entity that is exempt from all the laws that govern human behavior. And that's really, and to, as we come to a close here, like to connect that back to like, to, to anarchy, like that is why I identify philosophically as an anarchist, because it's like at the end of the day, when you grant to any group of people, this special status where they, they, they have special rights and privileges to be able to violate the very laws and moral um, moral norms that they claim to exist to protect, <laughs> you create all... It, it's just like... It, it's the same way that the Federal Reserve and easy money creates all these like errors in the free market. You know what I mean? It, the minute you introduce into human uh, relationships and morality, the, these errors that are created by statism by granting people these special rights to do things that are in violation of the natural laws that govern all other human relationships things just go astray and crazy and we we got to bring it back to just loving loving our neighbor even loving our enemies uh you know if we if we want peace we have to be willing to like Christ did forgive people and work towards restitution and restoration. And if if instead we have this, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mentality that Jesus kind of, you know, spoke against on the Sermon of the Mount, and com- combine that with this these the, the errors that the belief in the state creates, we're just setting ourselves up for our, our own destruction. And and I think. I hope that people listening today have been able to a learn some more about the history going on that's playing into the current events between Russia and Ukraine and America's involvement there to understand that in any war people on both sides are going to feel morally justified in the war that they're engaging in and 
we should try to sympathize with both sides insofar as like we're trying to understand where they're coming from so that we can better try to call both sides and all people involved to lay down their arms and to instead work diligently not towards bringing us closer and closer to Armageddon, but instead bringing us closer to finding ways to increase social cooperation and human flourishing. So, uh, Liam, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about all these things with me. Do you have any closing thoughts that you want to give before I close us out? Yeah, I, I would just connect it to what you just said to kind of the libertarian theory of foreign policy that I brushed on earlier, where, you know, there is this temptation because um, of this collateral damage effect where people on both sides are being killed. So it just compounds over time. Like Dan, Dan Sanchez, um, he, he's explained it in articles before where it's like, um, you know, you, you bomb a wedding that radicalizes like three more people who then go commit a terrorist attack, which then has like collateral damage, which results in three more people dying. And then it just compounds because you have this, this, um, temptation to get revenge. And, um, it's a very human thing. Uh, but, but like what you, what you said, we should, we should pray that our leaders don't fall to that temptation and that they push for negotiations as soon as possible. And we should be peacemakers and we should put that at the top. And in a very narrow sense, like I, I do say that everything is screwed and that we're, we're racing toward nuclear war and that, if that happens, then like in my testimony, I, I felt that I was fear mongering a little bit that I'm like, if, if this capital turns to ash, then not, nothing matters. I, I said that by uh, almost word for word, but that's in a very narrow sense because um, as Christians, we, we believe that we are saved. So while I'm, while I keep talking about uh, the fact that our leaders are putting us in, in this position and that, you know, it seems as if we're screwed. Uh, we aren't. Um, you know, Jesus has defeated death on the cross. And I, I want to re remind my, um, the, the Christian listeners of that and also point them to that C.S. Lewis quote that I, I mentioned last time I talked with you about, uh, he was asked about what we should do, what Christians should do in, in um, the age of the bomb. And he says, he, he has a long response and I encourage everyone to look it up, but he finishes it by saying, let the, let the bomb find you doing well. And I would just encourage people to not lose sight of salvation and the, the hope um, in, in Christ and in salvation uh, just because there's the, the chance that our, our politicians might uh, destroy the earth. Um, there'll be a new kingdom and uh, we are promised it if, if we are in Christ. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Amen. Well said. Uh, in fact, so well said, I won't even try to add to it. I think that was... Perfect. You know, it's the only true kingdom is that which we have our eternal citizenship in. And that should give us hope, not just for being able to face death, but also to uh, just, like you said, I think it's important to not give in to fear, but to just continue to do good in the face of all these different things and to let God use us where we're at to try to continue to point towards his kingdom and and his ways, which are better than our ways. So thanks again, Liam, for coming on quickly before we wrap up here. Can you just remind everyone where they can find you, give any plugs and uh, links or anything that you want to uh, mention before we hop off? Yep. So go follow me over at M Liam McCullum on Twitter um, and, and watch my uh, pinned tweet. I included the eight minute 
testimony and in, in um, that tweet. And then also follow me on YouTube or subscribe to me on YouTube at uh, just Liam McCullum is my channel name. Um, but I post the Liam McCollum show videos there as well as um, the Ask an Austrian series that I've been doing. So I have been asked by the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus to host their Ask an Austrian series where we invite Austro-Libertarian thinkers on to ask your questions about economics, libertarian theory, and ethics. Um, so if you have any questions that you've been wrestling with uh, about those things, uh, go over to askanaustrian.com and you can type your questions in and we'll have a future guest answer it live on the show. We, we're trying to do that uh, every first and third week of, I think it's every first and third Wednesday of every month. Um, and yeah, I think we might try to make it a weekly show eventually where we're trying to upgrade it and upgrade the look of it here soon. But um, as for now, we're, we're just releasing it twice a month. But I would encourage everyone to subscribe. Um, also to the, the Mises Caucus YouTube channel because that's where they're streamed to. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check all those things out. Follow Liam and everything he's doing. Thanks everyone for uh, tuning in and listening. Uh, this was the first episode that I've done since our little hiatus here and we'll be back with regular content now, hopefully going forward. You know, hope, hopefully I say because my life's crazy. I have four kids and people get sick sometimes. What can I say? But I appreciate y'all being patient. I appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. Please, as always, if you like this content, uh, like it, leave a review, subscribe wherever you're listening, share it on your social media profiles and pages if you can. And uh, of course, check out other podcasts on the Christians for Liberty Network because we have a good slew of them. And there are some other shows that are in the works and that will be released sometime later this year. So keep your eyes open for that as well. That's all I got for you guys this time. And I look forward to talking with you next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.